0: Welcome to the Relationship Road Trip, navigating the twists and turns of all the important relationships in your life. I'm Ben Azevedo, your backseat driver. Can this thing go any faster?
1: And I'm Dr. Don Fernando Azevedo, clinical psychologist, executive coach, and
0: voiceover artist, your navigator.
2: And I'm Kim Azevedo, licensed marriage and family therapy associate, friend from childhood, your mechanic.
0: Welcome listener to the driver's seat. Buckle up for some nostalgia. We're talking childhood friendships today.
2: Today's quote is by Aristotle because Don is old. Wishing to be friends is quick work, but friendship is a slow ripening fruit.
0: Last week we began a series about friendship and its role in our lives. Today we take up the earliest of friends and how we learn to make and keep friends. How early does friendship develop? Well, there are signs
1: of friendship in infants. Anything less than a year old, as soon as they start moving around a little bit, babies start to show that they are interested in other people. They'll reach for another baby. If they're in a group of babies, two may single one another out and smile back and forth. Closer to the one-year mark, when they have a little bit more body control, they begin to demonstrate an understanding of interaction with another baby.
0: This is interesting because my friends just had twins, and so we keep asking them like every week, Have they noticed each other yet and so far the answer has been more or less no they like they don't really seem to interact yet but they're only gosh like barely a month or so old right and they
1: probably they don't have enough motor
0: coordination to demonstrate right yeah they just kind of flop around for now right
1: as they start to develop more motor coordination um and they can move their head more freely sit up a little bit more not necessarily sit up on their own but sit up a little bit more, you might start to see that interaction. You know, and around age one, kids are definitely interested in other kids. And they tend to look for kids who are doing the same thing they're doing. As a matter of fact, if they see a kid doing something, they will try to imitate that in order to line up or match what the other person is doing. It's around age one and into age two that kids start to get interested in people who are not family. They kind of realize, oh, the world is bigger than this. There are more people around. When kids have interacted well on previous occasions, you can see a big change in the child's body to convey their excitement when they notice that child in a new occasion. This is really cool you know, because they're not expecting it. They don't understand time, but then they see the kid that they played with sometime before they vibrate, their hands will move. They they get very excited. It's very cool. It's so cute.
0: And it's cool that they are able to recognize a specific distinct other human. Yes. Well, they can do that right out of the womb. Right. We talked in the last episode about how much of our brains are designed for social interaction and that sort of recognition. Yes. It's pretty cool. That it happens yeah. so early
1: and if it wasn't kids would get killed early because they're a pain in the butt so they have to get cute real quick <laughs>
0: <laughs> well but being cute and recognizing a specific other baby is different i would say that's true you can look cute and not do anything
1: yes that's true except being cute means i have to recognize mom and dad the primary caregivers sure So at around age one, parallel play is the major part of friendship. They'll play next to one another, but not necessarily interact in any ways or pass things back and forth. They're kind of like an old married couple that don't need words to communicate. They just sit quietly in companionable silence. Around age two, toddlers become more possessive of their toys. You two were terrible about that.
2: What? Never.
1: I don't remember. And this leads to a lot of conflict.
2: We were besties from the beginning. (laughs)
1: Well, okay, if that's the way you want to remember it. (laughs) So kids around age two don't have the ability to see one another's point of view, nor do they understand social niceties. So playing here is really about copying one another, trying to learn new behaviors, and keeping your toys to yourself. So around age two, you have to teach the child how to share but don't try to get them to share their absolute favorite toy. Get them to share toys that they easily can let go of.
0: Some of us never make it past this, this stage. That's true. That's actually super true. <laughs> <laughs> and you probably have met people who
1: are just like all into their things.
2: I still collect purple blocks. I did that in childhood. I do remember that part.
1: Oh, there you go. See, just little memories popping out everywhere.
2: Oh, yes. Yeah. I was very protective of those purple blocks.
1: Yes. Ben was very protective of red rings. Although you probably don't even remember red rings. Nope. It was one of your first toys and you just loved that thing. Can I make a guess? Was it a red ring? Yes. It Actually, it was a a stick with a ball and two red rings out from the ball. And the two rings moved. Oh,
0: this doesn't seem that interesting.
1: It looked like a lollipop. You liked it for whatever reason. Around age three is when things start to get exciting, particularly around friendship. Interactive play begins. The traditional elements of friendship also begin, where language allows a greater interaction and understanding. It moves from doing things to being with one another. So they're moving from parallel play to some level of interactive play, but it's mostly about taking turns at this point or sharing a toy pretending and role play start to evolve at this point. Preschool friendships help develop social and emotional skills, increase a sense of belonging and decrease stress overall. Do y'all remember any of your friends from preschool? No. It would be hard to remember friends from preschool. It's very early. It's pre-verbal and kids change pretty quickly.
2: Well, there was that, that kid that we had play group, or at least I had play group with who still sends us Christmas cards.
1: Yep. That was a neighbor kid. And it's his parents that send the Christmas card, but yes.
2: Oh, fair. But I don't know what age that was.
1: So that was from about one and a half to probably four. Okay. They moved away when you were about four. That's the correct age range. Good job. Yeah.
2: Woo. I had a friend.
1: Once. (laughs) You have a few friends. I think a bunch of friends
0: are going to write in to tell you, Hey, I'm your friend.
2: Nah, I don't think any of my friends listen. (laughs)
0: I think my earliest friend memories are from elementary school. That's pretty typical, actually. First grade, kindergarten,
1: first grade is where most people say I connected, unless they're friends, really good friends with like a cousin. If families live close together, that sometimes is a little bit earlier. For the most part, though, people identify friends and sometimes lifelong best friends from kindergarten, first grade through third grade. Typically, by the time you're 10 years old, you've identified a best friend. That best friend may last for a lifetime, but doesn't have to last for a lifetime. But that's pretty typical um, in how, how folks grow up. From four to six, things are interesting because there's a transition to kindergarten and going into first grade. And all of that can be super stressful. So kids who already have a friend with whom they attend classes now often make better transitions. They feel safer, less stress,
0: because they know somebody in the classroom. So are you supposed to try and get your kid to have a friend in preschool that goes to kindergarten with them? If that happens,
1: that's wonderful. It's probably not going to be in preschool. It's probably going to be in the neighborhood. Because if you go to your neighborhood school, more than likely, somebody in your neighborhood is the person to, to be friends with.
0: Right.
2: The bus stop friends.
1: Yep. Bus stop friends. You know, and we were talking about work friends and acquaintances, that kind of stuff. Bus stop friends are often acquaintances. They may not move to the level of friendship, which requires trust and sharing. Uh, But I know you and I can sit with you on the bus. So interactive play starts to happen at this point. You know, they go to, to, to make believe something like they're in a little kitchen thing. And one kid will say to another, I'll be the chef and you be the baker and that kind of thing. Or they'll they'll play school. I'll be the teacher. You be the student. And they'll start to organize how they do things. Actually, one of the things the two of you love to do was build castles or forts. Yes. You love to take the pillows out and get the blankets, the Mexican blankets, and make pillows and forts. Another thing that kids do right at this age, and they love doing that stuff. Working with Legos or um, Duplo, that kind of thing, and making stuff uh, is those a thing Tinker that Toys though. <laughs> the Tinker Toys, yeah, we had lots of those, and you all you all played with that a lot. Um, and again, like I said, this is where many lifelong friends, maybe not best friends, but lifelong friends, can be
0: formed. So what's the parent's role in all of this as their kids are going out into the world and getting into school and making friends? How do parents facilitate that and help encourage their kids to develop healthy relationships?
2: Well, we've talked a lot about this in past episodes about parenting in general, which is to be modeling healthy behaviors. With this, you want to be more of an emotion coach. You want to be willing to accept your child's emotions, help them name them, and then teach them appropriate ways to express those emotions, including anger.
1: Ben, do you remember when, when you would get angry and, and I would say, yeah, go hit the pillow <laughs> and you'd go throw yourself on the pillows and be angry about something and then say, okay, I'm done.
0: Yeah, vaguely. I remember the room in your office. The pillow room. That had all the pillows yeah. in it and the padded baseball bats. Yep. And they had those really, really big, that huge blue pillow mm-hmm. that was like, A hundred times heavier than any pillow has any business being. (laughs) I just remember as a kid being like, I can't, I can't even lift this pillow. Mm -hmm. And it was very satisfying to hit with a bat. Mm -hmm. I don't know what was in that pillow. (laughs) It was not normal stuffing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember. I mean, I remember the pillow, but I don't know what was in it.
0: It was heavy though, right? You
1: remember that it was heavy. heavy. Yes.
2: Like unnaturally heavy.
1: The number of times I had to move those pillows, yes, it was very, very heavy.
2: Well, so making sure to teach your children that there are appropriate things to hit and not appropriate things to hit. Moving your body when you're angry is a very effective way to express that emotion. Running or even screaming sometimes just releases that energy. Uh, So as Ben was saying, hitting that pillow, you know, he'd hit a point where he was just like, "Mm okay, we're good. I got it out. And that's part of sharing with your child how to appropriately move through different emotions. There are a couple of different types of parenting. The two that we'll focus on right here are authoritative and authoritarian. You want to be an authoritative parent, which is someone with high control and high warmth in the family dynamic. An authoritarian parent is high control but low warmth we can i'm sure think of several people in the world who <laughs> hold that type of control and low warmth for others with an authoritative parent style you're marking these clear expectations and boundaries but you're also creating conversation and space to express the emotions that are happening and this includes disagreeing with you as the parent so this is creating a space for your child who is able to communicate with you and disagree to some extent, and maintaining the boundary, but also letting them question why that boundary exists. I did a lot of questioning about why boundaries existed when I was a child. Unfortunately, they all had answers. (laughs) An authoritarian relationship is that discouragement of conversation, disagreements not allowed, there's punishment and compliance. And it's not at all a space to question and learn the family dynamic. In this parenting style, kids learn what to do, but not why to do it. With an authoritarian parenting style, the children are less likely to be able to generalize the different behaviors that they've learned. Additionally, they might be less liked by peers. They might be more controlling in their playtime. And they might even have severe outbursts of emotions and tend to have a lot more hostility and aggression. An authoritative parenting style will yield children with less aggression. They tend to be more self reliant, they have more self control, and tend to be better liked by peer groups. You'll want to show these behaviors in your everyday engagements, such as with your spouse, neighbors, or any other connections you may have. So you're wanting to argue with respect, accept influence, show that you can disagree and still be connected with others. These interactions will help your child learn and form how they want to interact with other children. It's also important to educate your children in different cultural experiences. The culture that your family is may not represent the culture of their friends. And recent studies have shown that emotional demonstration in body language is not actually universal. And some children might present differently with different emotions than your own child. This is part of educating them that diversity and inclusion is important, and that you can connect with a multitude of different people from different communities.
1: Well, one of the things you were angry about with me is that I had an authoritative parenting style and I would allow you to discuss things and have thoughts and ideas. And you grew up believing that all adults did that
0: and then got pissed off when none of your teachers did. I wasn't (laughs) angry at you for having that style. I was angry at you for not explaining to me that that wasn't how the world worked. That most of the world is authoritarian and not authoritative. Yeah. And that goes way beyond parenting and into just how much of the world functions. Yes, but I taught you a healthier way. Right, the issue I took was that you didn't let me know that that wasn't what to expect.
1: Yeah, that's true, I didn't want to burst that bubble.
0: (laughs) Well, it's burst. These aren't the only two ways to parent children. I mean, you can't boil it all down into just these two things. This is a really good comparison of-
2: The two that get confused for each other.
0: Yeah. And I was going to say two that fit nicely together in terms of parenting for emotional intelligence.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. But it's not all of parenting.
0: Right. There's lots of other stuff you have to teach a kid besides emotional intelligence. And these two things don't necessarily pertain to that as much. True. So speaking of emotional intelligence, it seems like most of this, the parenting styles and early friendships has to do with emotional intelligence. So let's talk a little bit about the components of EQ, emotional intelligence.
1: Yes.
2: Why is it a Q? Because
0: it's the emotion
1: quotient as opposed to the intellectual quotient, which is IQ. It's cute. And it was a branding thing that Goldman used early on to try and get these ideas out. Fair. It was not what was originally put out there, although it was compared to intelligence because intelligence alone is not predictive of success. However, emotional intelligence is predictive of success in the business world and most of life. So the stronger your emotional intelligence is, the more likely you are to organize other people to work with you to accomplish tasks. So you multiply the force that you have in the world. Oh, that makes sense. So there are four components to emotional intelligence, as described by Baron from Israel, who is the originator of the concept, and Goleman, who is an American who actually did the applications of it uh, more effectively. So the four parts are identifying your own emotions. I call this emotional literacy. It's having words to describe your feelings, and not just a word, but lots of words that describe not only the feeling, but its intensity level.
3: I
2: have a colorful chart just for this.
1: Yeah, it's an important thing. And most people actually don't have good words for all of their emotions. When you understand what you feel and to what degree or intensity, you're better able to express it uh, and to do so in a socially
0: appropriate way. What's an example of a socially appropriate way? Like, what do you mean by that?
2: So if you're angry, not punching someone in the face.
0: Yeah,
1: that's exactly it. So punching someone in the face would be socially inappropriate. But another way is to say, I'm really angry at how you did this or that or the other thing. Which is
0: socially appropriate. Yes.
2: Or if you can't actually process in the moment what you're angry about, simply saying, I'm really angry with you right now and I need a moment. Yeah.
1: Another socially appropriate thing. I have to take a breath. I need to manage my emotions. And managing your emotions is actually the second component of emotional intelligence. Here, you need to recognize that your emotions are yours to deal with. They are not the responsibility of anyone else. We often say, you made me feel this way. That's absolutely not true. People can do things, they can engage in behaviors to which our response is emotional. But it's our response. They are responsible for their behavior. I am responsible for my response. So learning how to self-soothe is an important skill, and you need that at all ages. Self-expression is another important skill, and it's one that you need to continue to hone over an entire lifetime. This one is probably the least practiced in America at this moment.
0: By self-expression, do you mean like what we were just talking about, being able to express your emotions, or are you talking... I don't know. I feel like when people say self-expression, they mean like doing art. Sometimes it is in art. Sometimes it's in art. It's in music. It's
1: in movement. There are lots of different ways to express emotion. In this particular case, I'm using language. How can I communicate with you so that our relationship stays in good stance about the effect you're having on me?
0: Right. Okay. That's what I thought. But I think there's two different things, but maybe
1: not. So the third component is identifying emotions in others. If you're well-versed in recognizing your own emotions, you have a head start on identifying the emotions of others. So emotions, when we think of the emotions of somebody else, what we're noticing is a pattern of behaviors that represent to us an emotional state. The behaviors are what we actually observe. We can't observe the emotion. The emotion is a deduction, From the cues that we're getting.
2: And like I was saying earlier, I mean, culture plays into that a fair amount, knowing that different cultures have different body language around different emotions and different body language in general.
1: Yes. And different understandings of social interaction. Right. That's so complex. There's so many cool things in all of that. So when you're trying to identify the emotions of another person, first, be respectful. What you're noticing and how you label it are your interpretations of the data. Verify your guess about what their emotion is and accept influence if you're not correct. So if, if I say to you, Kim, you're looking really angry. And you go, I'm not angry. And I said, okay, I get that. That's just my face. (laughs) What I'm noticing, though, is that your brows are furrowed, your fists are clenched, and you're very short in your communication with me. Well, she is short. I
2: was about to say, well, I am short. That's not going to change.
1: But you might say, yes, all that's true, but I'm not angry.
2: I'm thinking. Could be that. It's my thinking face.
1: Whatever it is, I need to accept influence. I might actually log that you identify that set of behaviors with a different emotion. And so when I'm working with you, I now have a love map. If you all remember that from earlier things, love map about baby
0: love. What you, <laughs>
1: what your, what that behavioral set means to you. Right. And that's an important thing. That's part of this emotional intelligence. Instead of imposing my will and my definition on you, I accept your definition of what your emotion is.
2: Right. Because if you tell me I'm angry enough times, I'm going to get angry with you.
1: And and then we're fighting about not what we need to fight about, or we're not dealing with the issue that made you angry. Accurate. <laughs> we're dealing with a new issue. It's
2: going to be taking you yeah. down. You want to see furrowed brows? I'll take you. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. When you've got these three steps down, now you have the opportunity to manage the relationship. When others are highly emotional, you can either escalate the situation with your emotions or help calm both of you with validation and understanding. Our loyal listeners will remember what validation is and probably can tell us all the six steps that go with validation. Those kinds of behaviors where I accept your emotion, I'm recognizing what's going on and I'm not taking it personally, All of that helps calm a situation. If you respond with, you can't talk to me that way, it's going to (laughs) escalate. It just will. It's not good. So remember at this stage, breathe, calm yourself first, then acknowledge the other person's emotion and the intensity and avoid telling them to calm down. That is the worst thing you can ever tell someone who is emotionally upset. Just calm down. No, No. bad. (laughs) That's really, really bad. For parents out there who are going, there is no way. I've written all this stuff down. I'm taking notes. I've listened to it five times. Wow. (laughs) Nolan has done this. (laughs) Keep listening. (laughs) Um, And it's complicated. There is is some stuff out there that's super helpful. So check out Conscious Discipline. That's at www.consciousdiscipline.com. There's a section there about parents and parenting, lots of cool videos, super helpful in understanding many of the concepts we've just talked about today.
2: It'll also be on our resources page.
0: You can just click Don's voice, actually. Um, It'll take you, right? (laughs) (laughs) This week, we learned that friendships really begin quite early, with even babies able to recognize and react to other babies they've seen before. And by the time a kid is six, they might be forming friendships that last for the rest of their lives. We talked about the parents' role in facilitating healthy friendships and emotional well-being, and then we went over the components of emotional intelligence, which is a key factor in building friendships. Thanks for joining us on another leg of the Relationship Road Trip. If you have any questions, comments, or fun stories, you're always welcome to share by emailing questions at afpsych.com. And if you'd like to support the show, please take the time to leave us a rating in iTunes. Until next time, enjoy the drive.
3: Thank you for listening to the Relationship Road Trip. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we want to know what you think. So write to us at questions at afpsych.com. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or subscribing with your favorite podcast app. You can find more episodes of the show at relationshiproadtrip.com or wherever you download podcasts. The Relationship Road Trip comes out every Wednesday at 7 a.m. So don't forget to tune in next week. The Relationship Road Trip is brought to you by Azevedo Family Psychology, where they are dedicated to helping you create a life worth celebrating. You can learn more about their services at Psychology.com. This podcast is produced by Bearcave Audio. Bearcave Audio provides a range of audio services from original composition to podcast recording and editing. To learn more, go to bearcaveaudio.com or email ben at bearcaveaudio.com
1: Until we meet again may the road rise up to meet you may the wind be always at your back and may the sun shine warm upon your face.